So this is a conversation I had with journalist, essayist, uh, and academic Kong Sung Gan. It's broadly about three themes, all um, focused around Hong Kong, but I think could be applied elsewhere. The first would be the concept of lawfare. So lawfare is this term for the selective or biased enforcing of law to achieve a desired outcome by the state. Uh, in the case of Hong Kong, very aggressive uh, sentencing, very aggressive prosecutorial tactics, very open-ended uh, enforcement of law or very selective enforcement of law in an effort to neutralize and suppress the protests. Uh, the second thing we talk about is police brutality and police mentality. So the brutality of Hong Kong's police has obviously been a major focus of media coverage, but I also wanted to talk with Kong about the demographics. Who might be a cop? What might be their background? Uh, why would they have a very aggressive or violent mentality towards protesters? And finally, what would be motivating them to come out week after week and um, face off with protesters and oftentimes unleash violence against citizens that they may have grown up with who speak the same language and oftentimes would have far more similarities uh, demographically to them than differences. Where, where does this violence and where does this violent mentality come from and who are these uh, police officers? Uh, and finally sort of floating around our conversation, broadly speaking, is this specter of liberalism. Um, both its limits and also its potential. Um, I think in terms of these questions of democracy, uh, depending on who you are and where you're from, you either find democracy to be sort of tantalizing or oftentimes maybe quite limiting or even disappointing in terms of the outcomes it produces. So this specter of sort of the limits but also the, the potential or even radical potential of democracy I think is a major theme. If you like what we're doing, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, follow us on YouTube, follow us wherever you can. We started these interviews to try to bring a bit more intelligence and nuance uh, to travel. And we hope that our main uh, business, which is offering thinking and nuanced travel programs in Asia, reflects what you hear in these interviews. We want more nuanced conversations about Asia and we want more nuanced travel in Asia. So if you're considering coming to Asia, think about us. All right, here's our chat with Kong. I hope you enjoy our conversation. was another brutal night um, in Hong Kong um, and usually the the sort of hidden brutality starts in the day where there are press briefings with uh, Carrie Lam's office and the uh, PR office of the uh, police during their press conferences. So um, recently there's been um, 
uh, coverage from Reuters of Carrie, a leak uh, that Carrie Lam um, was recorded at the Hong Kong Club, sort of this elite private club, talking about how um, if she could resign, she would. If she could withdraw the bill, she would, sort of saying that her hand is forced. So I'm wondering if you could um, explain what sort of the events politically have been in the last 48 hours in Hong Kong and then your own uh, take on those events. Well, just in general about the whole Carrie Lam issue, to me, this is something that it appears people in the rest of the world maybe have a hard time getting their head around. But Carrie Lam is a complete political irrelevance. She has no power whatsoever. The way things work here is that the Communist Party controls everything. The Hong Kong government is nothing more than a proxy for the Communist Party. So, you know, these these supposed revelations of the last few days is something that, you know, everybody in Hong Kong already knows. The only thing that's important about them is that they, you know, there's some concrete evidence to back up this this perception that the Communist Party is is behind um, everything. So, you know, one of the messages I just have been trying to get out to the rest of the world is that um, the Hong Kong government has no significant autonomy um, on anything that the Communist Party believes has to do with its uh, interests. Um, and, of course, that's, in a sense, the root of the the crisis at the moment and what the the protests are are all about um, and the other thing is that you know in 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 the west the especially among you know governments and politicians people kind of repeat this mantra of man maintaining one country two systems and you know from the point of view of hong kong one country, two systems is effectively dead. Um, and that's something that the Communist Party and and protesters, in a sense, agree on. And what this struggle is all about is over what's going to replace that. And of course, what the Communist Party wants is full control and assimilation of Hong Kong into the rest of its empire. And uh, what protesters want is, you know, self-determination and democracy. So this is the struggle that's going on uh, while the rest of the world, at least the political authorities, keep repeating this mantra of one country, two systems. And I think it's because I don't know to what extent they're they're just blind or, or willfully blind, um, because, you know, if if they recognized that one country, two systems has failed um, because of communist interference, then that would oblige them to change their policies about Hong Kong. And, and no one wants to do that because it's, it's inconvenient for them. You know, when it comes to China policy, they've got many bigger fish to fry than, than Hong Kong. You know, they're interested basically first and foremost in trade and then um, certain countries, at any rate, also in security um, issues. And so those, you know, are of top uh, priority and nobody really wants to deal with Hong Kong. And so the result is they just keep repeating this mantra. And so I, I'd like people to know out there that 
that you know there there are remnants of one country two systems if you want to look around you can see that there there are obviously still differences between hong kong and and china but but in terms of the the government in terms of what the communist party wants to do you know one country two systems is history it's the it's the past and people should be you know figuring out what the present and the future are so turning then to the police um i had a a two-part question when it um comes to the police violence of the past uh 72 hours, so including this weekend, um, what is the new norm that the Hong Kong police have established through their conduct in terms of the level of police brutality that um, is now currently being seen? We sort of have gone from tear gas at the start of the protest to uh, baton beatings uh, in the middle to now it seems like deliberately trying to hurt people as much as possible. What does that um, police violence look like and sort of the, the machinations of why the violence level is continuously being raised? And then within a typical scene of an arrest, I think it's very um, hazy for people. What is sort of the cycle of escalation and stress look like? So you see a young person get arrested, the police will then get surrounded by journalists, those journalists will then bring sort of a crowd chanting triads or shame at the police. The police will get more agitated. Can you tell us a bit about the tactics and level of violence currently? And then when these arrests happen, what does it look like, this sort of cycle of, of escalation that occurs within an arrest? Well, I think in order to really answer your question well, a little background or, or context is important. And the first thing I should say is that I, I have... Uh, profound sympathy for the police. I think uh, they've been put in an utterly impossible position because, you know, they're supposed to be a law enforcement agency, but they've been co-opted by the regime as essentially a kind of militia to defend the the regime. And as a result, they're, they're being um torn apart you know there there are 30,000 cops in Hong Kong Hong Kong has you know one of the highest proportions or ratios of of police officers to to citizens in the world and and what that means is you'll find police officers in every community in every neighborhood they're they're a part of society they're a part of Hong Kong their Hong Kong uh, people uh, as well, and they've been forced to take sides in this fight, and they've been politically uh, co-opted, and it's a it's a it's a horrible, tortuous situation for uh, them to uh, be in, um, and I really place responsibility for this, not only with the political authorities like the communist party and the Hong Kong government, but with the top leadership of the, of the police force. They're the ones who are really to, to blame for this situation. And it's something, um, we shouldn't forget, you know, after the umbrella movement, um, the, the lesson learned by the police is, 
uh, was we have to be much better prepared for this sort of thing in, in the future. And so what that meant for them was building up their arsenal in a very kind of militaristic way and acquiring all these so-called crowd control goodies and, uh, you know, getting all kinds of training. And then when the day arrived, which is to say when the protests started in June, they were totally unprepared. Um, you know, and in that sense, they were like most people, nobody really knew what was coming. And, and here it was, and all of us, including the police, have been trying to react to developments as, as they've unfolded. But the police were so uh, unprepared for how to deal with this this situation. And the result of that was that they were so easy to manipulate by you know, the political powers. And once the Communist Party ruled out any kind of political solution to the situation, that meant their their main tool for dealing with it was the police. And and so it's uh, it's an impossible um, position for the the police to um, be in. I think that's important context whenever you look at what's uh, what's going on here and I, I've been in many situations in the protests where I found myself basically trying to protect police officers from protesters who I felt were, um, you know, uh, bullying them or acting in unjust ways toward them. So, uh, you know, I I I'm not the sort of person who is just going to you know, relentlessly condemn the police without looking at the, the bigger picture. So that's kind of like my prologue. I mean, that said, um, what the police has done is horrific. I mean, in many respects, we're really in a kind of police state uh, situation here. But it's really this double situation where on the one hand, the police are more powerful than ever. And on the other, they're weaker than ever because the situation in Hong Kong right now is almost like um, uh, you have these fortresses like government buildings and police stations and the liaison office that the police are tasked with guarding at all costs and police are are in these fortresses. So, you know, so many places you'll go in Hong Kong these days, you won't see a police officer. They've abandoned the streets, so to speak, except when they're sent out to to, you know, attack people, attack protesters and attack citizens. So that's the kind of situation. And when they are, it's almost as if they've got this mentality that they're in enemy territory. They they regard um, everyone they come across as as a potential enemy. And and in this, they're they're really not wrong because uh, Hong Kong people despise the police these days. And you know, not just frontline protesters, not just even moderate protesters, but many people who've not been involved in the the protests at all. So, you know, here are the police put in this impossible situation that has nothing to do with law enforcement and sent out into the streets where they're regarded, you know, where they're regarded with great hostility. You know, it's it's pretty predictable how the police are going to react to situations like that, coupled with the fact that 
um, they're confident of full impunity. They're uh, confident of not uh, having to be held accountable for anything they do because in a way they're the only tool the Communist Party and the Hong Kong government have the, the, because they've eschewed all political solutions. So the party and the government rely entirely on police to solve this problem of the of the protests. So if you put those two aspects together, then it's almost like the the way that the police act is is sort of um, you know uh, determined. And what we've seen in the last few days is that the police are trying to impose ever higher costs on people in the hope that this will grind down the protests and eventually bring them to um, a halt. So, you know, there were, um, you know, police say 159 arrests during the weekend. And in a sense, that's kind of par for the course. There have been previous weekends with about that number of arrests. That is the highest number. But, you know, there was another weekend with 148 arrests and so on. But what's striking about the last two days is the large number of arrests on weekdays at small uh, protests. That's something that's quite new. So we're still trying to calculate the number of arrests last night, but it looks like it's between 30 and 35. And the number of arrests the previous night, Monday night, has been you know raised from 19 to 23. Um, and that sort of thing is really quite... Um, uh, new and has to do with a couple of factors. One is that mm, these arrests were associated with people going to police stations and police have been told keep people away from police stations at all costs. And that means not only like shooting at them from inside the police station, but chasing the ones who come to the police station. And so, you know, the, that's what happened last night and, and the night before and apprehending them. And part of that has to do with this idea that when it comes down to it, there are maybe only a few thousand sort of frontline protesters who are really going to push things to the, to the limits. And so if the police can arrest enough of those types, then it will, it will, it will weaken um, them. So that's, that's one of the things you're, you're seeing in, in these, uh, last couple of days, which I think is a little bit different, but it's not only through arrests that the police are attempting to impose higher, you know, risks and costs upon protesters, but also through, um, banning, uh, marches and you know the the success of the protests so far to the extent they've been successful is that there's been this alternation between what I call you know more confrontational protests and what the media calls violent protests and um, nonviolent um, uh, protests which in most cases are also uh, approved beforehand by the the police. And that's where you've had, you know, the, the huge numbers of, in the millions um, turn out. And now the police are banning all those as they did this past weekend. And um, it makes, you know, all these kind of more moderate types think twice about whether or not they want to be out on the streets. Um, and so in a sense, it's a little bit 
uh, creating this self-fulfilling prophecy where all the communist propaganda is about violent rioters. And here, you know, the, the arm of the communists, which is the police now, um, are banning protests, banning legal protests, which, you know, means a lot of those more moderate types may not come out to the streets, and that isolates the, you know, the, the confrontational ones. And, um, you know, that's basically what, what they're up to these days when they're banning protests and arresting people is trying to impose these, these, um, these you know, higher costs. So I have a, a quick three-part question on the police, and then maybe we'll close with infrastructure. Um, so number one, I, I, I just wanted to ask if you could highlight um, a few examples of um, police brutality. So last night, uh, a protester might have been paralyzed. There's been numerous instances around uh, misogynistic violence. Uh, inflicted on female protesters. So just so violence doesn't remain abstract for listeners, if you could expand on that. Um, part two would just be for American listeners or for listeners who are familiar with colonialism, typically we think of police uh, violence as one that has roots in racism or class lines. So in the U.S., there's a lot of white police violence on black citizens based on sort of the inherent dynamics of racism and racial capitalism in the U.S. So when we hear terms like cockroaches said by Hong Kong police to Hong Kong citizens, it's very confusing. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just explain that. And then lastly, if I'm arrested, um, Legally, what happens from there? So I, I'm not clear if I'm arrested, let's say I'm a frontline protester and I'm arrested. What are the legal uh, penalties that then the, the Hong Kong court system is incurring on me? And is this something the police are, are putting heavy pressure on, on barristers or prosecutors to make the legal ramifications as punitive? So number one, what's the violence look like? Some examples. Number two, where does this hatred come from? Why would I be calling someone a cockroach if they look like me, if we might live in the same neighborhood? And then number three, we've talked about sort of the, the uh, physical penalties, but what do the legal penalties look like in our, their mechanisms uh, that the Hong Kong police are trying to use in the court systems now as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, great questions. First of all, with the police brutality, um, a lot of the recent cases of police brutality have to do with the kind of policing that's going on. And I'll take what happened uh, on Saturday, August 31st, um, as uh, an example, because the police kind of have a double face. And on one, I mean, obviously, police forces are all about, um, you know, monopolizing uh, violence. But you know, a good police force in a democratic system under rule of law is doing that in a very uh, disciplined way. And um, the, that's, that's also the case often with the Hong Kong police force. But because of some of the policing tactics that be have been adopted, you see another face of the Hong Kong police force, which is almost like an occupying army 
um, that wants to exact retribution on the people it's, it's occupying. So if you look at August 31st, the way the violence evolved that day was that protesters had gathered around government headquarters um, and, you know, the police in their fortress mentality were protecting government headquarters. And that meant they wouldn't they didn't want to even allow protesters to get too close to it. And, you know, as in previous situations, some protesters were throwing some things at the police. And for the police, that's the pretext to um, attack. So the police started, you know, firing tear gas and for the first time ever used these water cannon trucks that they bought after the uh, umbrella movement and managed to disperse the protesters and push them away uh, from government headquarters, a couple of, of streets away, uh, actually. Um, but that wasn't enough for the police. After that, they began to give chase. And many of the protesters retreated down Hennessy Road, which is one of the main arteries on Hong Kong um, Island. Um, and police uh, went to a place on Hennessy Road, which was near Arsenal Street, where the police headquarters uh, were are. And they set up a kind of um, line there. And there was a standoff between them and protesters who were about 200 meters away further down um, Hennessy Road for quite a long time. And this is just as it's starting to get dark. And then the orders went out to um, begin to disperse protesters by pushing slowly down Hennessy Road. Now, I was there and I walked the whole length of Hennessy Road from where those barricades were near police headquarters down to Causeway Bay, which is a matter of a few kilometers. And there were tens of thousands of, of protesters in the streets, most of them not engaged in anything that could remotely be considered violence. So this was a, you know, this was a, a very challenging dispersal operation for the police that was going to take a long time. And in fact, at this point, the police had used, you know, had been quite patient. And to the extent that they'd used violence, it had been quite disciplined. So they moved down um, Hennessy Road and come to uh, Causeway Bay. Um, and by this time, it's nine o'clock or so in the evening, which is three and a half hours after they first started firing tear gas at protesters at, at, at government headquarters. And at this point, the police lost patience because they had managed to push the protesters further and further down Causeway Bay, but the protesters weren't dispersing. They were a large number were remaining in Causeway Bay and others were doing what protesters have done throughout the movement, which is to scatter to other parts of the city. In particular, they were going over to 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 Kowloon um, and the police just lost it at that point. And I mean, lost it in an emotional sense and in a tactical sense, because they decided that what they were going to do was change for this from this kind of disciplined violence, as I call it, to what I would call something like 
hand-to-hand combat. That is to say, they were going to go, they were going to apprehend protesters, which means putting them on the ground, etc., etc., etc. And anytime you get in a situation like that, you're bound to have police abuses. And that's what happened. And police have been moving more towards those aggressive tactics. You saw it on Monday night, too, and on Tuesday night. And so it's no surprise that out of that come what, you know, appear when you see it on, you know, videos is just uh, blatant uh, abuses. They are blatant uh, abuses. And it really, that tactic uh, really brings out the very worst in the police and is what makes them appear to so many people in Hong Kong as a kind of, you know, occupying uh, force. Uh, So that's, you know, the the issue of, of... of um, police uh, brutality. Yes, I'm sure there are bad apples in the police force. Yes, I'm sure there are police officers who enjoy exacting violence on on protesters, who do it with a kind of vengeful um, attitude. But um, that's not really what's uh, causing the the brutality overall. It's these tactics that the police are are um, using. Um, so that's the issue of police uh, uh, brutality. As far as, you know, like this thing about police calling protesters uh, cockroaches, well, there's a lot of name calling going on here. And, and the the protesters certainly aren't innocent either. I mean, they use, um, uh, we, I should say, use, I don't use it, but a lot of protesters use extremely dehumanizing language when, uh, you know, engaging with police, when sh- shouting at police and, and, and so on. So, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's uh, one thing to remember is it's not uh, a one-sided thing. Now, perhaps you could say police officers are supposed to be more disciplined than, than your, your average citizen. Um, but the, 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 you know, the cockroaches slur, I I think is just you know one of these one of these things that the 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 police do. Um, it's uh, you know it's it's of course it's it's dehumanizing. Uh, opponents often use dehumanizing language with with one another, and I do think that there is an attempt to kind of um, instill this um, this sense of loyalty to the regime by, um, uh, you know, uh, encouraging police officers to regard uh, protesters as, as the enemy. But as much as anything else, I think it shows how, how fearful the, the police are, um, how, how fearful uh, the regime is. And, you know, when you have people in positions of authority who supposedly have the legal authority to use violence and they're fearful, well, you know, how, how do you think they're going to use that, 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 that violence? Probably not in, in the most um, uh, responsible uh, way. But uh, apart from the whole cockroaches slur, um, you can see classism in all sorts of ways here in Hong Kong. So just to give one example, the, the first time MTR really kind of complied with the wishes of the Communist Party um, was on August 24th um, in Kuntong when there was this district march that day. 
Um, and it was actually a legal march. It had gotten approval from the, the police. Um, and yet, in spite of that, um, MTR closed down uh, all the stations in the, the area. So um, is it any surprise that Kuntong happens to be one of the poorest areas of, of Hong Kong? In other words, the MTR didn't give a damn that it was inconveniencing all the, the residents there because after all, what do they count for? They're just poor people. Um, whereas, you know, on August 31st, this past Saturday, um, police banned the big civil human rights front demonstration and march on, on, on Hong Kong Island. Um, and everyone was wondering, oh, are they going to do the same thing they did in Kuntong the previous weekend and close all the MTR stops? And the answer was not a chance because Hong Kong Island is where the rich people live. <laughs> so, you know, there, there, there are many, many classist uh, dimensions to the, the, um, the, uh, the protests here. And, you know, as far as racism goes, it's not sort of racism in the, the classic, um, uh, you know, sense of, you know, white on black racism in the, the U.S., but there is this dimension. And the dimension has to do with identity. And it has to do with this question of, is Hong Kong a Chinese society or is it not? Um, and of course, for so many protesters, what this is all about is, is, is fighting for Hong Kong. It's a kind of Hong Kong patriotism. It's, a, it's standing up for Hong Kong and saying, we're Hong Kong people. And, you know, all the main slogans of the, of the protests have to do with that in, in one way or another. And, um, you know, implied in police slurs against protesters is, is this identification with the regime and looking down on ordinary people. And in a sense, you know, this authoritarian idea that uh, the, the subjects must comply with the, the ruler. And there's a very colonial element here. Um, you know, from the point of view of many Hong Kong people, myself included, we're experiencing colonialism here in Hong Kong. We were a colony of uh, the British for almost all of our modern history. And all the British did was, you know, hand us over in a nice little package to the Communist Party. And now we're the victims of, of, of party uh, colonialism. And in this sense, we're like all the other peripheries. We're like Xinjiang, we're like Tibet, we're like Taiwan. Um, we're all victims of this, you know, Communist Party colonialism, which has this very particular idea of what China means and isn't interested in what we think <laughs> about that. Um, so, you know, there, there are lots of issues of colonialism and classism and ethnic, ethnic identity and so on involved in, in the protests. And the last question is a really good question because I've noticed there's a lot of confusion from observers about what happens when you're arrested in, in Hong Kong. So um, if you're arrested, um, the police must charge you or release you within 48 hours of uh, arrest. So within that time, the police have to decide whether they're going to charge you with a recognizable crime, 
uh, or whether they're going to release you. Um, so that's the first thing that happens. And that 48-hour period is, is quite crucial in a lot of ways. I don't know if you saw this statement that the Hong Kong Bar Association put out yesterday, but it was really quite striking because the Hong Kong Bar Association tends to be rather moderate and very careful with its words. And it was accusing the police of widespread beatings and, and torture and detention. And there have been multiple um, allegations of all forms of mistreatment and detention um, uh, during these protests. And I would say that's probably quite new in Hong Kong. It's not like it didn't occur at all before, but I don't think it occurred in such a, a systematic way um, as we're seeing now. Um, so people have the right to access to legal counsel when they've been arrested. And one of the issues in many cases has been that that's been um, delayed or, or, you know, denied for an extended period of time. Um, and, you know, people should remain silent when they're arrested. They don't, they're not required to speak to the police at all, except to show their ID cards and give their names and addresses, uh, basic uh, information like, like that. Um, and one of the things that's been quite striking that's happening more frequently is police deciding to charge um, people quite rapidly, so rapidly that you wonder how can they already figure out that they've got enough evidence to, to prosecute these people and cooperating with the Department of Justice, which is part of the Hong Kong government, to bring them to court and to uh, lay charges on them. Now, earlier in the protests and in, in the past, what would happen is that the police would arrest somebody on suspicion of a particular crime and then, you know, say that they were going to conduct further investigations and wait to see whether they have enough evidence uh, before they decide to prosecute them. And they would release them within 48 hours and they would release them on bail, which means that you're required to report periodically to police stations, um, etc., and say that, that you know, they, they could be prosecuted in the future. But what we've been seeing, especially in the last few weeks, is police basically taking people straight from the street to prison to court um, and, and pressing charges on them uh, right away. And so, you know, right now, I think last count was, according to police figures, 1,117 people arrested, and that number's increased in the last two days. Um, and something like between 150 and 200 people charged. And what that means is those, those people who've been charged have been brought to court and have had a first hearing, which means that the 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 government intends to prosecute those people. And some of those trials are starting already here in September, and there'll be quite a few with uh, their first trial hearings in, in October and November as well. And one of the key questions is how intent are the police and the government on increasing the, the number of people they decide to, to prosecute? So, you know, for the umbrella movement, a hundred and uh, sorry, a thousand and three people were arrested and overall about 250 people prosecuted. So about one fourth of the people arrested were eventually prosecuted. Um, up to now, you know, it's it's not even 20 percent of the people arrested who've been charged, but most of the people charged have been charged fairly 
recently, which suggests that the police and the government may decide to ramp up the number of people they are they're going to to prosecute. The other issue is that um, the police have been increasingly in cooperation with the Department of Justice deciding to um, to uh, prosecute under quite heavy offenses. And the one that people point to the most is this riot offense, which is a very problematic offense. We've got something called the Public Order Ordinance in Hong Kong, and many of these protest-related crimes like unlawful assembly fall under the public order ordinance, which has been heavily criticized by the UN Human Rights Committee and Human Rights Watch as being too vaguely worded and open to abuse. And we're seeing the the government and the police um, abuse it to full effect now. And this 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 charge of riot is one particular um, example because from my way of looking at things, you should be charged with a specific act. So, for example, if you're in an unlawful assembly and you're arrested, you can be charged with, you know, participating in an unlawful assembly. If you're somewhere and you hit somebody, you can be charged with assault. But riot is essentially a charge that's saying um, you happened to be somewhere where there was an unlawful assembly and perhaps you engaged in something that could be considered violence, like, for example, throwing a bottle or, or something like that. And suddenly the, the, the penalty for that increases exponentially. So the maximum penalty for riot is 10 years. And, you know, one of the heroes of the current protests, Edward Lung, is currently sitting in prison for, what is it, six years or seven? I can't remember. Seven seven for riot um, in relation to, you know, the 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 pr police protester clashes in in Mongkok in 2016. So when when police start charging people with riot, uh, it's a sign that they're really going to go for the sort of like most punitive measures possible. And this is all the more striking, considering that one of the um, things that that brought about these huge protests in the first place was when on June 12 police uh, you know uh, attacked a hundred thousand people you know 99,000 plus of whom were entirely nonviolent and arrested people and charged them with riot and so one of the five demands of the protest is to drop those charges and instead, what the police and the government are doing is doubling down and saying, not only will we not drop those charges, but we're going to apply them more uh, widely. Um, so I hope that answers your question about what happens when you're, you're arrested. Sure. I have two more questions. Is that okay? Um, for... Um this is another multi-part question. So I know that the top brass of Hong Kong police is increasingly trained in the mainland. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of the sort of cultural schizophrenia that might look like. So is top brass, are they um, trilingual? Are they speaking English, Cantonese, and Mandarin? Are they dual citizens where they're incentivized by um, the CCP to take when they get a top position job, are they given capital that 
exists in China where they would want to protect sort of a quid pro quo relationship where they're given huge sort of severance packages or huge um, uh, benefits in their contracts that are sort of directly tied to making sure that Beijing's bottom line is adhered to. I guess for, still for me as a, a foreigner, it's very confusing of like beating, you know, sexually assaulting women, um, beating people's faces in last night, you know, maybe paralyzing a 15 year old boy, beating a kid in a wheelchair. I, If you could talk a bit about, you know, as Wendy Brown says, we're all neoliberals. People have incentives for not quitting their job as a police officer. What are some of the benefits if I'm at, you know, just a grunt compared to top brass? Um, what do those benefits look like that would get me out in the streets day after day? And then in terms of the concept of lawfare. So part one is just why are the police doing what they're doing? And for top brass, does Beijing incentivize them in ways with, with money or, or so on and so forth? And then for, you know, figures like Junius Ho, who's a villain if you're on the side of the protests, which I am, I'm wondering for, for judges, are there figures like Junius Ho's who are deliberately stretching the law in a way to work with the police? Is there a combative relationship where some judges will be very pro-protest, very trying to adhere to the rule of law and not allow this sort of lawfare? Or are you seeing a relationship like you do in the Hong Kong legislature where some uh, judges would be like a Junius Ho, obviously of sort of an ideological bias, and if I bring a charge of, and this is a real charge, assaulting a police officer with my breast or assaulting a police officer's ears with my loudspeaker because it was too loud, or being charged with selling dangerous materials like baseballs, as that pop-up riot store was, um, so to, to bring that question home, what are the incentives of police officers, like the real actual incentives um, when they're getting trained in Beijing and how does Beijing maybe select who they want to groom? And then for the Junius Ho sort of dynamic of the pro-Beijing, what does that look like in the judiciary? Are there the sort of Junius Ho judges and uh, Eddie, Eddie Chu judges, just like we would see in the LegCo of pro-protester, anti-protester? Yeah, yeah, really good question. So first of all, just, uh, um, it's a little bit inaccurate to say that that uh, Hong Kong police are trained in the mainland. Um, so the, the situation is this, that um, if you're, uh, if to become a police officer in Hong Kong, you have to go through police training college, which is in Hong Kong. And you know, I would say for the most part, people are taught, you know, best practices in line with um, international standards. And in many respects, the Hong Kong police force is uh, a very um, professional police force. And, you know, you've heard probably pro-communist people say stuff like, well, you know, what, what the Hong Kong police are doing is nothing. I mean, look at what the police do in the U.S. or France or whatever. And, you know, those are supposedly, you know, democratic countries. And look at the police abuses there. And, you know, there, there's some truth in that. In other words, the Hong Kong police force is, is uh, in many respects, a highly um, professional police force and should in no way be equated with police forces on 
the mainland, which, you know, uh, engage in abuses much more systematically uh, in, than, in, than in Hong Kong. That said, um, especially since the umbrella movement, trainings uh, of Hong Kong police officers in the mainland have increased in number greatly. Um, and these trainings are often very little is known about their details, but they're often like characterized by the government and the police force as kind of like um, uh, information exchanges where, you know, Hong Kong police and mainland police are just like swapping uh, experiences and practices and and so on and so forth. But as you may have heard, you know, not too long ago, a, a, a contingent from the Hong Kong police force uh, went to um, Xinjiang to learn about anti-terrorism practices there. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> what do you think they could learn? What are they going to take away from that that could be useful to apply in, in Hong Kong? You know, they're locking up a million people in concentration camps up there. So, you know, obviously those kinds of exchanges are going to have some kind of, you know, influence on 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 Hong Kong uh, police and of course most people would say not not a very uh, positive influence and then you've got this issue of the top leadership of the Hong Kong police which is in many respects little different from the top leadership in the Hong Kong government which is to say those people are put in those positions um, uh, based on one top criterion and that is loyalty so you don't get those positions unless you're loyal to the regime. Um, and uh, so, you know, in a way, the position of police commissioner is a very political uh, position. And you may know that the, the previous police commissioner during the time of the Umbrella Movement, a man named Andy Tsang, um, after he retired, he was, you know, given all these accolades and awards by the Communist Party. He was put on the CPPCC, which is the, the uh, you know, the, the consultative group of kind of like political uh, loyalists to the regime, um, just like C.Y. Lung, the, the, past, um, the past chief executive was. He's now the, the vice chair of that. Um, he was appointed to head a mainland commission, Andy Tsang, I'm talking about. And recently, the Communist Party appoint, uh, um, uh, nominated him to fill this uh, United Nations position as kind of like the United Nations drugs are. So, you know, in other words, if you're loyal to the regime, that's what happens to you um, and afterwards. So, you know, the, the, the police commissioner and perhaps some of the other top leaders in the police have that kind of political loyalty and buy into the, the ideology of, of, the, of the regime. Uh, that's running China and, and running Hong Kong. So that's that's very much the 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 case. Um, you still got a lot of you know top officers in the Hong Kong police force who you you could you know call professional, whatever their their you know political uh, beliefs uh, uh, might be. But you know that sort of thing, and and you know they need them because they need those professional types to be effective on on the streets. But uh, the political influence on the Hong Kong police force coming from the top is definitely um, there. You know, then in terms of like the, what what's in it for for frontline officers, 
Um, becoming a police officer in Hong Kong is a pretty good job um, because it pays fairly well. Um, it's quite secure. You know, once you're in the force, it's like a lifetime job. And this is in, you know, a turbo capitalist society where neoliberal principles apply and there are very few workers rights so you know you're you're somewhat protected from that if you're if you're a police officer not only that but you get very good benefits you get um all over hong kong we've seen protests at these these um high rises that belong to the police force where police families live so you get uh, accommodation all these sorts of things um and this is for people who, you know, may not have a very high educational um, background. You know, one of the slurs that protesters often throw at police is that, you know, they're ignorant and uneducated and all this sort of uh, stuff. Um, you know, in fact, police come from mixed educational backgrounds, just like the general populace. But, uh, you know, people have this perception that, if you're not that well educated and you're looking for a good and a secure job in Hong Kong, you could do a lot worse than becoming um, a police officer. And, you know, I talk with people all the time about, you know, what 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 are these police officers thinking? Are they enjoying what they're doing? Are they not? And, you know, the general consensus seems to be that that ordinary police officers don't like what they're doing. And. Uh, would very much like the protests to be over and feel very uncomfortable. I mean, I certainly get that impression with the police in my neighborhood, many of whom I know by sight. Um, I get that that impression from the police I know and and you know talk to sometimes when they're they're uh, off duty, um, but. You know, one of the issues when you look at nonviolent struggle um, is when you see the nonviolent struggles that been, have been successful, they usually have been able to get regime loyalists to flip, to either no longer support the regime or go over to the other side, to the protesters' side. And throughout the umbrella movement and throughout these protests, that's something we've never managed to accomplish. You know, uh, in other words, you know, we've seen virtually no defectors among government officials within the police force, um, with the, you know, within the business community, the tycoons, uh, all of that. Um, the regime has managed to to keep them loyal, and that's the the basis of the regime's power and uh, you know an enduring uh, weakness of the of the Hong Kong freedom struggle. And there's been no sign whatsoever that the police, whatever their misgivings or ambivalence might be about what they're doing, would ever break uh, ranks. So the police have really been able to maintain. Um, loyalty and discipline through the ranks um, throughout uh, all of this. Um, then the last issue about the judiciary, that's a very important issue. And, you know, just as you'll hear people, you know, intone one country, two systems like a mantra, you'll hear people say things like, you know, Hong Kong has rule of law, Hong Kong has an independent judiciary. Um, and um, that's true, but in a qualified 
way. I mean, it certainly does if you compare it to to China. And in many respects, it rivals, you know, um, judicial the better judicial systems um, elsewhere um, in the world. But there's been tremendous political pressure put on the Hong Kong judiciary, especially in the last five years. After the Umbrella Movement, the Communist Party looked around Hong Kong and said, what sectors do we have the least control over? What sectors are the most autonomous? And they particularly identified education and especially universities and the judiciary. And so they've gone about trying to gain greater control over those sectors in many different ways. And in the case of the judiciary, a lot of it has to do with um, wearing the judiciary down by bringing prosecutions. And what we've seen is that the, the lower echelons of the judiciary, the, the magistrates' courts, where um, most of these people who've been arrested in the protest will initially appear, um, have appeared to be quite impervious to these uh, political pressures. But the high court, which is Hong Kong's top court, its constitutional court, has not. Um, the, we've seen the greatest political influence, I think, on, on, on high court decisions. And it's like so much in this society where, um, because of the way the Communist Party works, everything gets turned into a political issue. So, you know, you saw this with Cathay Pacific, you saw this with the MTR Corporation, and you see this in the high courts where basically every decision the high court makes, it's, it's second-guessed um, politically. And, um, you know, judges are people too. And in Hong Kong, judges are very insulated from the rest of society. They live in their own compounds. They float in their own social circles. In all my life in Hong Kong, I've never met a judge, unlike, say, police officers. I mean, there are many fewer judges, but nevertheless, I've never met a judge. You, you know, unless you run in their circles, you never encounter them. Um, and um, socially, they're very conservative. Um, and in many ways, I would say they're very conservative. So they abhor, you know, violence uh, with quotation marks and are quite ready to um, convict people for violence and impose stiff sentences for violence, as we saw with, you know, all those people like Edward Leung who were prosecuted over uh, Mong Kok. Um, but on top of that, they, the high court judges really have uh, political feeler, feelers, and I would say that they're quite authoritarian. And I should explain what I mean by that word in this context, because what I mean is, you know, when you're on the high court, you're you're uh, facing cases with constitutional implications, and in any constitution, there are inherent tensions. And the role of a high court judge is to weigh those tensions and figure out what the best decision is based on that. So in the basic law, there are many tensions between authority and rights. And in virtually every case that's come before the high court in the last five years, the high courts ruled in favor of authority and basically not regarded um, rights that are in the basic law as being of 
um, of equal importance as issues of political authority. And I'll just give, I, you know, I could give a lecture on this as I already am, but I'll just give one case uh, as an example. So just in the news the other day was this case of Agnes Chow um, winning her election petition. Agnes Chow was um, barred from running for LegCo um, on political grounds, that she belonged to a party that, that advocates um, self-determination. Now, advocating self-determination is not a crime in Hong Kong. There's no uh, law against it, just as there's no law against advocating independence. And yet, um, the Communist Party is trying to, across the board, ban people with those kinds of views from any kind of place in the in the public realm that it has control over. So she was barred, and she took the case to court through an election petition. And the other day she won. And many people were surprised she won at all. But she won on a technicality, which is that the judge said she was denied uh, procedural justice or fairness because the returning officer who made the decision to bar her and works for the Elections Commission here in Hong Kong, um, uh, that returning officer neglected to allow Agnes Chow to respond to the case against her, which is that she should be disqualified because she advocates self-determination, her party does, and that's against the, the basic law. So no court has ever decided that advocating self-determination is against the basic law. But here the judge said because she'd been denied the chance to respond, um, that barring her was, was, um, was wrong. Um, but in the very same ruling, the, the judge upheld the argument that was made when Andy Chan, the leader of the pro-independence national party that was subsequently banned, um, uh, made. And that was that uh, these returning officers do have the right to bar people based on their decision that these people would not be able to uphold the, the basic law. Um, and that means that if Agnes ever did decide to run again, she almost certainly would be barred again uh, on the same ground. So, you know, this is a ludicrous decision because returning officers are administrators. They're basically meant to see if people have, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's on their application to be a candidate. And now they're thrust into a position of determining whether or not a candidate will uphold the basic law. Even though in order to apply, you have to say you're going to uphold the basic law, otherwise you can't apply. And it, rather than take that to, in, at face value, these returning officers are now supposed to like go back through Facebook posts and see if people have said anything that looks like maybe that would mean they wouldn't uphold the basic law. So here we got have to do with you know two very basic human rights in international law and also in the basic law, which is the right to freedom of expression, the right to political opinion, the right to um, run and be elected in elections. And rather than the judge saying, these are very important rights and they must be respected and they're not in this case, the judge simply, you know, uh, decided to not really look at those rights. And so that's what we see is we see high court judges that are not 
really entertaining human rights arguments. And if you ask me why, the answer is because of the political pressure brought to bear on them. I think these high court judges fear that if they rule against what Beijing wants, Beijing will double down and interfere more in the judicial system. So I think these very conservative high court judges see themselves as defenders of the system. But in order to defend the system, they have to give the Communist Party what it wants, which of course is the very opposite of defending the system. So in a way, they're a bit like the Hong Kong police force. They're being put in an impossible position where they're having to contend with political factors that they shouldn't have to contend with. And here is where you see the very nature of the regime, the very nature of the Communist Party, which is still totalitarian in the sense that political factors rule every corner of society. And that's exactly what the protesters are fighting against. That's exactly the sort of place we don't want Hong Kong to become, and we see it becoming. This was a really fun chat. The last question I have to ask, because we've talked about neoliberalism, and if you say it once or twice, you have to ask a question about it. It's like that game Bloody Mary. If you say it three times, you have to, to ask about it. Um, so the last question I had for you is sort of this, this frontline logic, and I want to look at it as another two-part question, but it's the last one, of sort of tactically versus structurally. So a very famous phrase amongst the Hong Kong frontline, and perhaps, you know, some of their more sympathetic, as you said, moderate uh, protester, uh, protesters who are behind them protesting peacefully, uh, is if you burn, we burn, you, uh, if uh, we burn, you burn with us, is something you, you've started to hear more and more. And the New Yorker just did a, a big uh, piece about sort of the nihilism or the hopelessness uh, of, of um, what the protesters are going up against. So I'm wondering, um, in terms of the strategy of, of this sort of, if you burn, if we burn, you burn with us, how have you felt about that uh, tactically? Um, obviously, the Black Panthers, I think, are very interesting. Not obviously, but for me, the Black Panthers are very interesting, where they forced the state to bargain um, in a lot of ways. Obviously, they were, themselves were destroyed, but they were able to get reforms from the state that, that basically sued for peace by peeling off, you know, their more liberal allies um, because they, 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 they wanted to, to stop the Panthers. So to stop the Panthers, they peeled off their support with sort of piecemeal um, uh, bargains or piecemeal incentives uh, to their various supporters. So tactically, what do you think of if uh, we burn, you burn with us? And then in terms of the fight itself, you're starting to see more pieces um, in the Financial Times, in the Straits Times, in Seven China Morning Post about um, people who do have the money talking about leaving. Um, similar to 97, similar to 2003, probably similar to 2014. So something that I am sympathetic for the frontliners is that they're stuck. A lot of those kids are, are not, you know, they're not going to get jobs at Bear Stearns. They're not going to get jobs uh, at international firms. They're not tycoons, you know, with several houses whose names are in the Panama Papers. They're likely stuck in whatever Hong Kong becomes. So that's not true for people who live in Discovery Bay if they're part of an expat family. And expats, 
you know, have not participated in these protests for the most part, nor have the international schools. The school strike happened uh, these past two days. And, uh, you know, it, it was mostly uh, it, kids who went to local schools. You didn't see a lot of international students. So for this phrase, can you talk to me about it tacti uh, tactically? And then can you also talk about this sort of neoliberal element that this is the one thing the protesters can sort of hold hostage, the property, <laughs> the property of Hong Kong because it's so overvalued. And they also know they're, they're going to be stuck behind in whatever Hong Kong becomes. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in those two avenues as, as our last point of discussion. Let me start off by saying there, there are two issues here, setting aside the neoliberal thing for a moment, and I'll come back to that. Um, so the first issue is, is this a revolution or is it not? I think that's one issue that a lot of protesters themselves have been um, a little bit wary of coming to terms with. And the other question that I think, you know, the international media in many ways has done an outstanding job of covering these protests. Obviously, not all the coverage is, is very good, but a lot of it is, is very good. But one of the things I think they really haven't gotten to the bottom of is, is where do these protesters, especially the frontline protesters come from and who are they and i don't necessarily mean like what 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 kind of apartment did they grow up in but more sort of like what's their political uh lineage because they didn't just uh come out of of nowhere so first of all on this question of whether this is a revolution or not you know in in some respects hong kong protesters are remarkably conservative so if you go back to the umbrella movement in 2014, um, all protesters were asking was that the Communist Party respect the basic law, no more and no less. So, you know, um, that, you know, they weren't they weren't asking for the sky. They weren't asking for the moon. They obviously weren't trying to overturn the system, whatever. So flash forward to now, and these protests supposedly have five, you know, explicit demands. And if you look at those demands, they're remarkably similar to the umbrella movements in that they're not revolutionary in nature. So, you know, they have to do with things like fully withdrawing the the um, the extradition bill, um, dropping charges against protesters, stop labeling uh, protests uh, a riot, um, set up a, a, you know an independent commission of inquiry to look into police abuses and other aspects. Um, and the last one, which is the same as the umbrella movements, which is uh, implement universal suffrage. So, if you look at those demands, they're really quite moderate demands. And it says so much about the kind of political system we have here that the government refuses to entertain even these very moderate um, demands. And it's because, you know, the Communist Party refuses to even countenance this idea of engaging in anything that looks like dialogue or negotiations with its citizens. It would be incredibly face-saving for, you know, a totalitarian power like that to stoop to actually recognizing its subjects as having legitimate demands. So here we are with these five 
very moderate demands. So if you look at those, you say to yourself, this is obviously not a revolution. It's just a movement for, you know, to get these these concrete and, and quite moderate demands met. And yet, if you look at what's going on on the street, if you look at how long things have endured, if you looked at how many people have, have participated in this, if you look at some of the the slogans like, you know, liberate Hong Kong revolution of our times and so on, it looks very much like a revolution. So what is it? Is it a revolution? Is it not? And I think protesters ourselves are schizophrenic about what we think about that. If you ask me deep down in every Hong Kong person's heart, whether they're a frontline protester or whether they're, you know, a more moderate type this is a revolution. This is it. We want a free Hong Kong. We want a democratic Hong Kong. We want an egalitarian Hong Kong. We want uh, the right of self-determination as it's promised to us in the two most basic you know, human rights instruments in, in international law. Um, we want these things and to get them would indeed be revolutionary because it would totally overturn the order as it is now. Um, and, you know, behind every revolution isn't just, you know, some kind of like, you know, uh, intellectually thought out demands. It's, it's passion and heart and the passion and the heart is on the side of, revolution. And in that sense, it's a revolution. And if you're in a revolution, you're pushing it to the end, right? But the interesting thing is, if you ask people, you know, why are we pushing so hard? And they say, oh, we want the five demands met. And you're going, hello? There's a bit of disjunction between how hard we're pushing and how moderate these demands are, right? So within the, the movement, I, I don't think we're that clear conceptually about where we're going. And, you know, if you ask people in the movement, if we burn, you burn with us, what do you think of this? Um, people will have very different responses. Some people are all for it and some are like, ooh, you know, I don't, I don't know. That sounds, you know, very, very self-destructive. Um, so in every Hong Kong person, you have the heart that is a revolutionary heart in the sense of wanting these things for Hong Kong that were, would overturn the system as it, as it now exists. And yet you also have this very pragmatic, not to mention fearful Hong Konger who's like, ooh, you know, um, we might lose everything in pushing so hard. I mean, we do have it better than your average person in, in China, and maybe we should uh, keep that in mind and, and back off uh, a bit. So um, there's that aspect of it. And then also within the movement, there's this feeling among some, I'm not one of them, but among some that um, the frontline protesters are hijacking the movement, you know, and that, that's an issue you'll find in just about every leaderless movement, as this one's been called, is that, you know, certain um, elements within the movement, because of the actions they take, end up pulling the movement in a certain direction. And some people um, feel that about the, the, the frontline 
protesters and feel that they're falling into uh, traps laid by the Communist Party, which allows the party to characterize us all as violent rioters and and so on. So, you know, there's lots of there's lots of um, tactical um, issues here, but that's where this issue dovetails with my next point, and that is, you know, what's the political lineage of the frontline protesters? And it's it's basically this, and I almost feel like I'm I'm revealing a secret when I say this because it's been talked about so little, and so few people seem to have recognized it. But you know, in the umbrella movement already, there were there were lots of young people who were fed up with the way we were going about things and all this, you know, uh, you know, um, cuddly feely, um, nonviolent, sit there and do nothing sort of thing. Uh, and they were already frustrated by that. And out of the umbrella movement, lots of people were depressed afterwards, more than I expected them to be. But there was also tremendous political energy unleashed. And most of it went in um, one of two directions. One is localism and the other is self-determination. So self-determination is represented by people like Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow and Nathan Lawn, Demosisto and Eddie Chu and so on. And localism is represented by, you know, Youngspiration and Hong Kong Indigenous and Edward Leung and, and Yao Wai-Ching and, and Bajo Leung and Ray Wong and all of these sorts. And um, this was immensely attractive, especially to young people, because it looked like it was um, presenting a kind of alternative or a way out. And it was also extremely... Um, worrying to the authorities, which of course made Hong, young people think they were really onto something here. So what happened with this is that it, they've been persecuted and they also self-destructed. So like the police protester clashes in Mongkok in 2016 were an immense tactical blunder for localists and their organizations were basically destroyed. So does that mean that they disappeared? No. What happened was all of this tremendous energy went underground. Young people became extremely disaffected and alienated from the political system at all. They'd been excluded from it through, you know, kicking people out of LegCo, through um, barring people from running in elections. So, you know, when Carrie Lam says these people have no stake in society, um, she's half right. And the reason is they were never allowed into it. They were not allowed to participate from it. They were in it. They were excluded from it. And then on June 12, it was almost like rats coming out of the sewers. You know, I went out there that day and I was thinking, I wonder if people are going to come out. And from the very early morning, young people appeared in their thousands and then in their tens of thousands and eventually a hundred thousand. And for me, it was like, well, hello, where have you all been the last five years? And there they were. And, you know, that's where the energy of these protests has come from all along is this tremendous frustration by Hong, young people, this tremendous sense of Hong Kong identity and wanting to protect and defend it, um, this sense of, of Hong Kong um, patriotism. Um, 
And uh, that's really important to, to, you know, keep in mind when you're looking at uh, slogans like, you know, if we burn, you burn with us and so on. Because what people have learned is I think people are much less naive about the Communist Party than they used to be. And they realize that you just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And the moment you relent is the moment... Uh, of the beginning of your downfall, because the party will crack down. You know, nobody has any illusions about that anymore. So there's nowhere to go but forwards. So if you understand those political dynamics that have, you know, developed over the last five years, it's easier to understand why you have that kind of ethos, especially among um, frontline uh, protesters. But the funny thing is, we really don't know what we're pushing for. You know, the Communist Party calls us, you know, like independence advocates and separatists and so on. And again, the party is half right about that. If you really got down to the bottom of a Hong Kong person's heart, the average Hong Kong person wants nothing to do with a China ruled by the Communist Party, would be very happy if Hong Kong could be its own independent state. But, but the average Hong Kong person is also a pragmatist and would really settle for just being left alone. But that's not the nature of the regime. If the regime had left us alone, if the regime had given us universal suffrage in 2014, 2015, Hong Kong would be a very calm, ordinary place today. But that's not in the nature of the regime. The nature of any totalitarian regime is it wants full control and it won't stop until it gets it. And so you've got the collision because you've got the frontline protesters who say they won't stop until we get what we want. Now, the last bit is, you know, how much does, you know, all these sorts of issues of um, uh, neoliberalism and so on play into this? And I would say they play into it, but you should never imagine that this is first and foremost a movement that's being propelled by economic uh, issues. It's very much a political movement, but the politics here have everything to do with inequality. And that means not only inequality of political power, it means inequality of economic power. And in Hong Kong, the two things are so intertwined as to be almost inseparable. The people in Hong Kong who have political power are the people in Hong Kong who have economic power, and all roads in both cases lead back to the Communist Party. Hong Kong is the most unequal developed society in the world, and it's, it's systematic how um, unequal that development, uh, that, 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 that inequality is, and it's perpetuated in every aspect of Hong Kong society, including the education system. Um, and um, so this movement is indeed a roar against that inequality. It's not something people talk about that much. It's not, you know, part, it's not part of the slow, main slogans of the movement or whatever. Um, but it's the sense that um, uh, Hong Kong people have no power to determine their lives and determine their future, whether in an economic sense or in a political sense. And so what you see here with the umbrella movement in this movement 
is Hong Kong people sloughing off the chains of the colonial mentality that was imposed on them by British rule going back to, you know, the middle of the 19th century. And the colonial, the colonial mentality is this. You get used to other people, other places making decisions over your life. And Hong Kong's also an immigrant society. That is to say, almost everyone came here from somewhere else within the last hundred years. And part of the immigrant mentality is you want to make a better self life for yourself. So you put your nose to the grindstone and you work hard and you don't necessarily feel like this society you live in is your society. Now, these days, all these young people were born in Hong Kong. It's all they know. Um, and they're, they, they're powerful, they're confident, they're free, and they don't have, they're not as influenced by the vestiges of this colonial mentality as, as their, their elders are. And so they're demanding a say in their own society. And having a say means making that society more equal politically, which obviously would make it more equal economically uh, as well and lead to, you know, a greater egalitarian society. So in that sense, I would say, you know, the really deeply entrenched economic uh, inequality in Hong Kong is an important element here even if uh, it's not, you know, it doesn't result in, in slogans about, you know, like overthrowing the tycoons or, or anything like that. You know, corporate um, authorities here like Cathay Pacific and MTR really didn't become targets of the, of the, the protesters until they so clearly aligned with the, the Communist Party. And, and that says something, you know. So it is a revolution politically, but not directly economically. Although if the political system were overturned, it would lead to a kind of economic revolution as well. That makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, thank you for uh, elucidating that point. Um, I'd like to ask a favor. When you uh, have a moment, if you could send us some good literature to share about uh, law, uh, policing, or any particular text you like about um, the economics of Hong Kong. Obviously, I recommend Alice Poon's work uh, to everyone to try to better understand um, Hong Kong. But anything that you think might be harder to find um, would be great to share. Kong, for people who want to find out more about you and, and your project covering arrests um, and covering uh, the Hong Kong protests, where would you point them to? I'd much prefer people to to uh, direct their energy to finding out as much as they can about what's going on in Hong Kong and, and doing whatever they can to uh, uh, support us here. I do think it makes a difference. It's not just sort of like a moral or spiritual sort of thing. You know, I think it's next week the U.S. Congress goes back in session. And if you listen to things that both Republicans and Democrats um, have said uh, about Hong Kong, it appears that perhaps for the first time there could be a very real chance of getting the, you know, Hong Kong um, uh, Human Rights and Democracy Act passed in Congress, because there is that kind of bipartisan support for it. And, you know, people can take real actions like calling their 
representatives to Congress and telling them to support the Hong Kong uh, Human Rights and, and Democracy Act. Uh, uh, it makes a difference. Representatives listen to that. And if the Hong Kong um, Human Rights and Democracy Act were passed, that would make a real difference as well. You know, up to now, uh, governments around the world have taken virtually no significant action on Hong Kong. So that's maybe the first uh, time a significant action that would actually have some kind of impact could be uh, taken. And so, you know, that's something I would very strongly encourage people to do within the coming week. Call, call their representatives if they're U.S. citizens.